Now let's uh, turn now to the New Testament and the Gospel according to Luke and uh, chapter 9. That's page 1601. And reading at verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come up for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. These words that Christ spoke in verses 55 and 56, where he says to James and John, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, last Sabbath night, we saw something of the importance of being in the right spirit before God making sure that we do the right things, of course, but making sure that we also do the right things in the right spirit. And I want to return uh, to that theme with you this morning because it is, of course, of the utmost importance for ourselves and for <coughs> others, whether Christians or the world, it's of the utmost importance that we learn to guard our own spirits and to keep them in check. It is easy to yield to a bad spirit or a bad temper, I suppose, particularly if we have a certain kind of temperament, which was true of James and John. It's easy to yield to it, and in so doing, to endanger our own souls and endanger the souls of others too, through a bad witness or even through something that we might do in anger or in a bad spirit of any kind. And that, of course, is what this particular passage in the Scripture brings before us. And there are two men here who are in danger of doing something in a wrong spirit. And they are possibly two men that we wouldn't expect to be in that situation, and they are James and John. And uh, as we consider the passage together, we'll see exactly what it was that was wrong with James and John and how the Lord uh, himself uh, dealt with it. And of course, in looking at these things, we look at them with a view to our own instruction and our own growth in grace. Now, the Lord at this point is, although it's only chapter 9 in Luke, he is already making his final journey towards Jerusalem. And then usually he decides to look for lodging in a Samaritan 
village. Now you remember from some time ago that I, I said quite a bit about the uh, tensions that were between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, there were uh, good reasons for these tensions because there was a, a, a spirit of apostasy in Samaria and falling away from the true religion um, to an extent that wasn't so much amongst the Jews. And down throughout history, the Samaritans were always a source of um, temptation or falling away from the true religion and the true ways of worship. So there was a, a legitimate sense of carefulness around the Samaritans. But of course, what had happened through the years was that, that when religion became formal, it just became hostility. It wasn't a spiritual carefulness which should always be accompanied with love and consideration and kindness. It just hardened into a, a mutual doubt and a mutual hostility and the two peoples really took little to do with each other. Uh, you'll remember therefore how surprising it was to the apostles when Christ uh, spoke with the Samaritan woman beside the well and how he brought the gospel to the village from which that woman came. So he had preached in Samaria and he saw fruit there. That didn't mean that the disciples were still keen to be there. It's a place that they would rather still go round every time they went to Judah rather than go through. And here the Lord is not just going through, but he is actually going to lodge there. Now, when he earlier uh, sent them out, he told them not to go to the villages of the Samaritans or to the Gentiles, but just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That reminds us that the Lord has his own ways and methods of doing things, and he, he expects us to do the same, not to court unnecessary controversy. He expects us to lay building blocks and to build on them and so on. But he doesn't want them to um, remain hostile to these people or to be hostile to them. He has already encouraged them to bring the gospel to them, and of course, a day will come very soon after his own resurrection where he's going to command them to go out into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, but then on to Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. So he's introducing them to that bit by bit. They have to get used to bringing the gospel to a people who don't want it and a people who are perhaps likely to reject it. And of course we know that ourselves. I mean, very often we do end up bringing the gospel to those who don't want it and who are likely to reject it. There is a great danger once we are rejected that we begin to want to avoid that rejection and the easiest way to do that is to stop taking the gospel to people altogether. And that's one of the great dangers in doing so. Well, leave the Samaritans alone. The Samaritans are under the judgment of God and if God wants to save them, well, he will save them. You remember when the great missionary movement revived in Scotland in the uh, late 18th century, there was a, a general attitude on the part of many people in the church that if God was going to convert the heathen, he would find a way of doing it. There was no need to go out and bring the gospel to them. It was astonishing that such an attitude should be in the church, but it was there in the church, very much so. And uh, that kind of attitude can be there for lots of different kinds of reasons. The Lord doesn't want that attitude. He wants us to have a good, clean and healthy attitude to a world that is in need of salvation. 
So he sends these two first. This was his custom anyway. Wherever he was going to go himself, he would send two people first to find a suitable place uh, and people who were willing to receive him. Now sadly, the two who were sent to wherever they were came back with negative news that uh, nobody in the particular town that they visited, whichever it was, nobody was willing to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us why. We're told in verse 23 that they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now that seems to us a very strange reason why they're unwilling to receive the Lord. Um, they're unwilling to receive him because his affinity uh, seemed to be elsewhere. He was going to Jerusalem to keep the feasts there, not in Samaria to keep the feasts in Samaria. So if, if that's where you're going and if that's who you identify with, well, we don't really want you in our midst here. It's to do with race, to do with culture, it's to do with uh, religious prejudice and things of that kind. Now, when the news comes that um, the Samaritans are not wanting to receive Christ in their village, uh, James and John are immediately angry about it. They're very angry. Maybe part of that has to do with the fact that the Lord was uh, so kind and gracious to a Samaritan village before, and they saw that in connection with the Samaritan woman and the whole village that had come to believe in him and accept him as the saviour. And in their anger they thought that the only the only thing that could be done with a people like this is that well that, that they would be judged. And the only fitting thing is that God himself would judge them. And as James and John thought about it and spoke to each other about it they remembered an incident from the Old Testament and it, it would be very natural for them to remember it because Elijah ministered in the area of Samaria, perhaps even in the very vicinity where all this took place. And they remembered how Elijah had called down fire from God amongst the soldiers who had come to capture him. Twice he did it, twice God answered and it was a clear judgment from God on a people who had rejected God himself. Well, if then, why not now? If God saw fit to deal with his enemies like that then, why should he not see fit to deal with them like that now? And so they come to Christ and they say, Why should we not? Or do you want us to call down fire from heaven just as Elijah did? Now that's a, a remarkable response yeah, in one or two ways. First of all, there's a question about their authority to do this. Do they really have a right to call down fire from heaven? Is Christ not there himself? Is he not the one who says what should be done, when it should be done, and how it should be done? Is he not the master, and can he not take care of the situation? 
You wonder sometimes when impetuous people like this come to the fore. You wonder if there's something like the spirit of Peter in it who was quite impetuous himself, you'll remember. Um, it's not that long ago since we were looking at Peter. Once Christ had announced the certainty of his own suffering and death, you remember that Peter, as the Greek tells us, took him by the sleeve, took him by the hand and pulled him to the side and said, Not so, Lord. Not so. And I think subsequent to that, there was a tendency in Peter to try to dictate matters anyway. And is there not a touch of that here? This is what we believe appropriate in this situation. But is that not better left to Christ and to the clear leading of the Master and not their thoughts and their interpretation? And still on the question of authority... It's not just a question of whether they should do it rather than Christ, but whether they should do it at all. They were never given that commission. If you notice carefully when Christ called them and equipped them and sent them, every aspect of the commission was positive. It was to do with mercy. It was to do with bringing healing and bringing kindness. They were to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Yes, and accompanying it, they were to heal the sick, they were to cast out evil spirits, and they were to raise the dead. There was no word of bringing judgment on people, no word of bringing anything like fire from heaven. The closest thing that approximates it, really, is when the Lord said, if there is a village there that rejects you, uh, if, there, if there's no welcome for you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that city. That, of course, was meant to be a testimony against them. It was a way, by doing that graphically, of disassociating themselves from the place, so that whatever judgment God would see fit to bestow upon them for their rejection of the gospel, they would have no part in it. Because you shared the gospel with them. You gave them an opportunity to hear, and you gave them an opportunity to repent. So, if that person wishes to remain unrepentant, to remain unbelieving, then the guilt of that doesn't fall on you. It's like the watchman in Ezekiel's time. If you blow the trumpet and they don't give heed, well, I won't require the blood at your hands. If you don't blow the trumpet, I will require their blood at your hands. That's the closest to it. No calling down of judgment, no fire from heaven, but simply disassociate yourself from their sin and from their unbelief. So there's a lack of authority for this kind of thing. The Lord is present and he's in charge, and they never receive this kind of commission. And as well as a question of um, authority, there's a question of power. Do they have the power to do this anyway? Do they have the ability to do this? It's only a short while before that the Lord upbraided them as disciples for not having the spiritual power that they ought to have. If you go back to verse 39 and 40, and again we looked at this some time ago, the man who was wanting healing for his son, uh, just go back to verse 37. Verse 37. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, that's the mountain of transfiguration, 
A great multitude met him, and suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And you'll remember when we looked at this passage, afterwards, when they were in the house together, the disciples came to Christ and said, Why why were we unable to cast out the Spirit? After all, you empowered us to cast out evil spirits. And in the past we have cast out evil spirits. What was wrong? And Christ said, It is your unbelief. It is your unbelief. So there was clearly something in their spirits that was not right. Not close to the Lord as they ought to be close to the Lord. Not having the spiritual power in their lives that they used to have. The Lord, of course, identified the root cause of that as a lack of prayer and fasting. A lack of prayer and fasting. This kind of spirit will only come out if you are in your place with prayer and with fasting. But here we are a few verses later and James and John think that they have the power and the authority just to call upon the name of the Lord and that a fire will come down on this Samaritan village and consume it. That's quite an amazing response. How does the Lord deal with them? Well, the Lord doesn't actually focus on what authority they have to do it or even whether they have the power to do it. Do they have the right to do it or the ability to do it? He actually just focuses on their spirit. In, In other words, why do you want that in the first place? Why is that your default response to this rejection? Is it right for you to be angry? And even if it is right for you to be angry with this people, is that how you ought to respond? You know not, he says, what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Now, I don't know to what extent you've thought about these words before. Maybe you've thought about them quite often and quite deeply. But you don't have to think about them too much till you realise that they could perhaps be taken two ways. And some take it as being a reference to James and John's old nature. Who they were naturally, by temperament, just as ordinary fallen, sinful people. In other words, as though Christ was saying to them, James and John, you don't know what your old nature is like. You don't know what your feelings really are and what your temper is really like. You have no idea. This thing that you think you're doing in righteousness, you've got no understanding that it really just rises up from your own hearts because you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. Others take it as being a reference to their new natures, 
to who they are as Christians. As though the Lord was saying to them, James and John, you don't know who you really are now. You don't know what I've called you to. The ministry that I've given you, the new temperament that I've placed in your heart. If you did, then that's not how you would respond to this situation. You would know that you share my spirit and that you would understand that this is a time for grace, for mercy, for long-suffering, because the time for judgment has not yet come. This is the time to seek out men's lives in order to save them and to have mercy upon them. The interesting thing is that both these interpretations make perfect sense. And in fact, both of them are true. And in that respect, there's, there's really no harm in which way you take it. Personally, I believe that our Lord is referring to the fact that they don't understand the Christian disposition that he has now given them. They don't fully understand who they are as new men in Christ and how that should make them think, how that should make them behave and how that should make them respond even in connection with other people. I'm quite sure that that's really what the Lord means, but there's no doubt that the other, the other interpretation makes perfect sense too because which of us knows the spirit we are of? Who, who knows really the depth and the depravity of our own sin, our own temper, its own badness? Who knows what our own nature is really like? Even in connection with James and John, there's, there's this idea abroad, you know, and it comes from John's epistles, probably, and the fact that John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, whatever exactly uh, that means. That's a, a moot point for now, but there's and because of John's frequent references to love, there's an idea that by nature John was a, a very calm and perhaps a timid type of person, which is not at all the case. And we know that's not at all the case, because when the Lord first met James and John, he nicknamed them. Now, the Lord did that with others too. Of course, he famously did it with Simon. He said to him, from now on you shall be called a stone, uh, Petrus or Cephas, you shall be called a stone. The Lord had his own reasons for that. But when he met James and John, he immediately called them uh, the sons of thunder. Now, that's an unusual name to give, the sons of thunder. Uh, you don't associate thunder with John at all. You'd say that, John, that thunder was miles away from John. But the Lord there is just picking up on what was true of them. That there was something thunderous in their temperament. They would respond quickly to a situation. And if anger was called for, well, they would be angry. Their tendency would perhaps be to spill over too much into anger. And to respond in anger rather than in righteousness. Now, it's, it's a good thing, in a way, that the Lord picks up on these things and that he even names them like that because it reminds us that, that, that it's people like that that the Lord is working with. We, we needn't think that the Lord comes to this earth and looks for people who are nearly in the kingdom and just puts them into it because that's, that's not the way it works. He finds people whose temperaments are widely different. Some are phlegmatic, some are sanguine, some are melancholic, some are choleric. Some are different like that, 
in the way that they respond to situations, vastly different on all ends of the emotional, temperamental spectrum. And he works with them. And he saves them. And he turns them bit by bit into the people that he wants them to be. That's what redemption is all about. And it's a wonderful thing. It means that we can never look at anybody and say, well, there's no hope for that person. We are never justified in doing that. And the scripture goes out of its way, as it were, to remind us of that fact by telling us that the Lord saves chiefs among sinners. It doesn't matter how far gone they may be and how far their temperament may be away from. Well, you remember someone like Legion. It's uh, an astonishingly miraculous case where a man was completely out of his mind, cutting himself because of suicidal thoughts and his contempt for himself, running about the tombs, with a maniacal strength, cutting the cords that people were binding him with. When the Lord speaks to him, he brings him to a place where he sits quietly at the Lord's feet. It's just a picture to us of how the Lord takes people of every kind of temperament and works with them and changes them. So that's James and John. They were sons of thunder by nature. Their natural response to a situation wouldn't be a Christian one. And here, lo and behold, it's that nature that is coming out. And it's so true in that respect that none of us knows what spirit we are really of and we have to guard against it. Even, even in our holiest times, when David was writing a psalm, he said, Do I not hate all those who hate thee, O Lord? With a perfect hatred, he says, I hate them. And immediately he follows that up by saying, search me, O God. Try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. <clears throat> Is there a connection between those two things? I would venture to say that there was. It's not easy to say an expression like, do I not hate those who hate thee? without suddenly being arrested in your heart and saying, well, well what do I mean by that, really? Is, is, is that me and my hatred for people who are opposed to me? Or is it, is it a moral disapprobation? Is it a deep moral and spiritual disapproval of those who are set against the Lord? If it is that, good and well. If it is the first, it's not good and well. Is it me standing on the Lord's side for the Lord's sake, disapproving of what is wrong for the Lord's sake? Or is it me hating my enemies who have done me wrong and am masking that up as being disapproval for the Lord's sake? Oh, friends, there's a big difference between these two. They can look alike. They can sound alike when the words come out of their mouth. In fact, only maybe God knows the difference. But if you are concerned about it, you will say, search my heart. Try it. If there's a wicked way in me. If even my attitude to your enemies is based too much on me and the wrong done to me, search it out, O Lord, and lead me in the way that is everlasting. I recently uh, referred, and I can't remember in what context it was exactly, but I know I referred to Jonah, who was angry with the grace that God showed Nineveh. Um, because you remember that Jonah was not at all of a man that Nineveh should 
should receive God's grace because he felt that Nineveh, as a persecutor of God's people, uh, just shouldn't receive mercy. Now, like I've said before on a few occasions, when we sit in our armchairs, we go with that kind of thing. But um, perhaps if you received, or your family received persecution from the hands of somebody, perhaps you wouldn't be so enthusiastic about their grace coming into their lives. I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying that that's a fact, or it may be a fact. Of course, God came near to Jonah and said, Jonah, dost thou well to be angry? Um, Jonah was angry because, you'll, you'll remember he had gone to the east of the city, and he sat on a hill to see whether God would have mercy on it or destroy it. And uh, when the 40 days passed and Nineveh wasn't destroyed, in fact, people were turning uh, and repenting. He, he was furious. Dost thou well to be angry? And Jonah said, of course, yes, he said, I do well to be angry. And I will be angry, he says, until I die. In other words, this is just not right. If you had asked Jonah if you had given Jonah a choice between fire from heaven to consume Nineveh and the grace of God, he'd have gone from fire from, he- from heaven. And he would have, he would have said that that, that, that that is the righteous dealing of God with him. I'm not saying by that, you see, when I'm saying that, I'm not saying that, um, that Jonah is somehow against God like that. I'm not saying that at all. I would just say that this is surely what God wants to do. And therefore I choose it too. You know, the fact is that it's his choice really. That's, that's, what he, that's what he thought appropriate and that's what he wanted. Judgment from heaven. That's what James and John thought appropriate as well too. Truly in that respect we don't know what spirit we are of. We're, we're full of You know, sometimes even in our best moments we're full of motives that are just not very good. And sometimes when we think we're just gung-ho for the Lord, we're maybe a little more gung-ho for ourselves than we realise. But although that's the case, like I said, I'm sure here Christ was referring to that new nature. In other words, James and John, when you're calling down fire, you're forgetting who you are now as Christians. That's what you're forgetting. You're no longer the sons of thunder. You are what I have made you. And you are who you are now by grace and by my spirit residing in your hearts. And your thunderous spirits are to be subject to mine. And you're to be conformed to me. In what way? Well, when I send you with the message of the gospel, it is a message of grace. And it is in order to save people and not to bring the judgment of God upon them. For the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. That's what the gospel dispensation is about. It is a period of mercy, extended mercy from God in his covenant kindness to all kinds of sinners. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. 
Now you know as well as I do that a time is coming when that changes. The Saviour returns a second time, not to save, but to judge. And he will summon everyone before this judgment seat. We know that to be true. In fact, if we don't respond positively to his message, Christ tells us that we are condemned already. But the lesson here is that this is a day of grace and a day of opportunity. And we've got to show that even to an unbelieving world. Well, let's take a little step back in the time we've got left and see what what really is that saying to them, just briefly. The first thing I want to say is what Christ is not saying. Christ is not actually condemning their zeal. And he's careful not to do that. He's wanting it channeled in the right direction. He wants it to be a seal that's governed by knowledge and that's rooted in love all right. But he doesn't condemn the zeal in itself. Zeal is good, as Paul says, but it's good to be zealous in a good thing and to be zealous in the right way. In fact, our problem in our day and age is that we have far too little of it. Far too little zeal. People may know what we believe, but do they know that we care about it? Do they know that the gospel has a hold of our hearts as well as our heads? Do they know that we feel something when the Lord is dishonoured? When his name is trampled underfoot and when his day is trampled underfoot? Do they know that we care about it? They may know that we believe that the Sabbath is to be kept holy. Do they know that we care? Zeal is something that manifests itself. Zeal is a temperature of emotion. Zeal tells us that we feel what we believe and that it matters to us. And in that respect, there's too little zeal. At least you can say here for James and John that when Christ is insulted, they feel it. They take an insult upon the Lord as an insult themselves too. Their hurt is for his sake. Can it be true that a people to whom he was so gracious and he was so kind and a people for whom he seeks welfare and good can actually turn around like this and not want it, not want the Lord of glory? They feel that. In all his afflictions, they are afflicted. Yeah, I would prone to think of that the other way because that's how the Bible speaks about it. In our afflictions, he is afflicted. But we can put it that way too. When he is afflicted, they feel that affliction. Is that true of ourselves? Or is it the case that we are never, never prone to correct it when someone says something wrong? Never prone to check it when someone blasphemes the name of the Lord in public? Because, well, maybe, maybe there was a day when you would. But that day is gone. And it hasn't gone because you're wiser. It's gone because you're less zealous. So zeal is good. But it needs to be grounded in knowledge and in love. What spirit were they of as Christians? Well, the first thing the Lord wants them to know is that they're of a merciful spirit now. Yes, it's true that under the gospel dispensation we are announcing a coming fire, but we're not calling it down. God will send it all right. And it's our duty to tell you that if you die unrepentant, 
you are going to experience the wrath of God into eternity. But I'm not going to call that down on your head now or ever. And no Christian will or should. In dealing with sinners, friends, you've got to show that you are interested in reclaiming them. Whatever their situation. Because the Son of Man has come to save men's lives and not to destroy them. And, of course, the world will recognise if we are seeking to reclaim them or not. It can recognise when our dealings with them, even if it is sometimes quite confrontational, even if you have to expose something or rebuke it and take it to them, they'll know, they'll know what spirit you are of. They'll know whether it's their well-being that you have at heart or whether it is somehow just getting something off your own chest or taking a box that you feel needs to be ticked, they'll know. And the last thing I would want if I was an unbeliever is to have someone checking me and crossing me who I thought did not have my interests at heart. That's why we need to be kept in a good spirit by God. Right from the start of the day. Let them know that we have a merciful spirit. The second thing is this. The spirit that you are of is a peaceable spirit. And that will mean that sometimes you walk away from a conflict. One of the easiest parts of this text to overlook is verse 56 and the last part of it. Where we simply read that they went to another village. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. After Jesus spoke to James and John, that was the end of it. They didn't go back into the village. They didn't harangue the people. They didn't start a confrontation. They just left it. They walked away. Sometimes you have to do that. The, the Christian seeks peace. And certainly things have to be opened up. Things have to be confronted and things have to be addressed. But if the spirit isn't there, leave it. Walk away. I think we often make that mistake, that mistake even sometimes in our own families, when we try to share the gospel in our own families. We, we're sometimes um, too pushy, too pushy. We keep saying the same things, or we keep taking every opportunity to, to say something or to check something, and all it does is it creates a spirit of annoyance. And you can even justify that in saying, well, I've just got to keep going and keep battering at that door. Well, no. No, it's actually best always to try a door, see if it yields. If not, leave it. There's only one power that can change the heart. That's the power of God. And we've got to allow that power to do its work. It's not our battering that opens a door. Certainly, by all means, we've got, we've got to try it. But only the Lord can actually open it. You've got to remember that. Christ did not go in and confront the village. Why aren't you wanting me here? He's left it. Learn when to walk away from a situation as well as when to walk into it. The third thing about their spirit as believers is that it must be a, an open or an impartial spirit. God is no respecter of persons. 
He has made all the nations of the earth. He knows the bounds of their habitation and he has ordered them. Of all people in the world, we have the less reason to be um, disapproving of uh, a race or a people. The word racism is completely misused. It's actually misunderstood, always being misapplied. But nonetheless, there is such a thing. People can feel a sense of superiority to other people. Um, no Christian should give way to that. The book of the Acts reminds us that God has made all nations of one blood to dwell on the earth. We can all of us trace our DNA back to Adam and Eve. There you have it. I've always thought it an interesting thing that in an evolutionary uh, conception of the world, there's every reason to be racist. Every reason to be. Uh, Why shouldn't one race under an evolutionary framework be superior to another? It's only under a Christian worldview that racism is actually abolished. There's no place for it. Because he made all nations of one blood to dwell on the earth. Now, it's just a question worth asking. Would James and John have been so angry if this was a Galilean village? Or even if it had been a village in Judah, would would they have been so angry? I mean... At one level, we don't know. At another level, we know that there was no come and go. And we don't find this response anywhere else. Is it a case of, well, we we showed kindness to them and, and, and there's nothing coming back? These people, you'll remember that the Lord's parable of the Good Samaritan was a parable about the Good Samaritan. It wasn't the priest or the Levite that moved to the side of the road to show mercy. It was the man from Samaria. And the Lord is telling a lot with that. He's telling a lot. We're prone to be full of our own prejudices. We prejudge people. We prejudge situations. We prejudge Christian people. We prejudge non-Christian people. For a whole host of reasons. And the Lord does not want us to do such a thing. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. There are many strangers coming into our nations, our nation, and they come from many nations. And for all I know, and I sometimes fear it, they may constitute one day the rod with which God is going to beat us. I'm not going to hide the fact that I fear that. I think it may well be true that they do constitute or will constitute the rod with which God is going to beat us, for our forsaking of all that is good and holy and right which the Lord gave us. But until that happens, it's our duty to show kindness and grace and courtesy, and that the stranger within our gates could at least see that the Christian wants the welfare of their mortal souls. Because when we see them, that's who they actually are, their people like you and like me, and they are in need of salvation. That is their primary need. And they've got to see that from me and from you. And is that one thing that the Lord is purging out of James and John here? I would reckon that it was. You know not what spirit you are of. Forget your attitude to the Samaritans. See them as I see them, and as the way that you're supposed to see them. Merciful, peaceful, and impartial. Just before I close, um, 
I want you to notice how easy it is to uh, misapply the Bible for our own use. They, they were able enough, James and John, and they were good men. And in, in a way, it's quite interesting how quick they were to go back into Samaritan history and to remember the ministry of Elijah and uh, how he had done this and called fire down. And you can always <laughs> you can always go through the Bible and find a little passage that will support uh, what you're thinking of doing. It's amazing how you how you can do that. It's important to remember that Elijah was a prophet. He was dispensing the judgment of God, not according to his desire, but according to what God wanted him to do. He was actually confronting a people who were apostatizing and turning in bitter enmity against God and against his people. Elijah wasn't angry with these people. He was showing the anger of God against these people at God's command and will. The more interesting example, in a way, from Elijah's life is that he actually prayed for a famine on the land. Um, this is taking us, you see, in fact, the whole passage is taking us into, into the interesting area of at what point or in what kind of situation is it right to pray for God's judgment, which is not an easy question. Some people say never. I don't believe that at all. I believe that on certain occasions, and very, very carefully, under the clear leading and guidance of God. I'm quite sure when Elijah prayed for a famine, he had biblical reasons to pray for the famine. He was praying there for a chastisement upon his own people, a chastisement that would even affect himself. And I'm quite sure he prayed for it with a heavy heart. James and John felt none of these things. It's all about the Spirit and remembering the Spirit you are of. Uh, <clears throat> there, there may be times of severe persecution where a church can say, Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold, even them who kept thy faith so pure of old, as they saw people rolling mothers with children down the rocks and killing the children when they were in their mother's bellies. Yes, there's a time to ask God to intervene. But we've got to be careful that it's not us and our, our heart or our anger. Be careful as to what spirit you are of. In all our thinking, we are to make sure that the mind that is in us is the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And in all our feeling and in our spirit, let's make sure that the spirit in us is the spirit that was in Christ Jesus. And if you have reached a place where your default position to pretty much anyone who's opposed to the gospel as well, and will believe and be, that just can't be right. They're sinners like you and me. Our default position is, let's try and rescue them. For the Lord. Let us pray. <coughs> Eternal God, uh, help us in these matters. Conscious as we always are that on either side of this narrow way there is a broad ditch to the right and there is a broad ditch to the left. And it is easy for us to err in the one way or the other. Grant us grace to 
be angry when we should, and to make sure that our anger is a righteous anger, and never to let the sun go down on our wrath. Help us like the Saviour to be angry at the right thing, in the right way, and to the right degree. And keep us from a self-righteousness that would look down on other people as being somehow not worthy of the grace that we have received ourselves. How easily we forget who we were and who we still are by nature, as though we deserved the grace that we never did and still don't. Keep us and make us humble. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's close with uh, the verses that I referred to from Psalm 139. At verse 21. Do not I hate all those, O Lord, that hatred bear to thee. This is a strong moral disapproval. With those that are against thee rise, can I but greed be? And of course that's right. Can he be anything but greed? With perfect hatred then I hate. It's a proper kind. My foes I them do hold. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, my thoughts unfold, and see if any wicked way there be at all in me, and in thine everlasting way to me. A leader be. Let's sing these verses to God's grace. <laughs>